South Sudan in focus on the voice of America. I'm John Tanza, working on this program very remote. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Thursday, August 4th, 2022. President Salva Kiir extends the mandate of the transitional government of national unity to another 24 months. Today, I'm informing the people of South Sudan that the political parties who signed the revitalized agreement resolve the conflict in the Republic of South Sudan unanimously agreed to a 24-month extension of the interim period. And envoys of the Troika countries boycotted a ceremony for announcing South Sudan's new roadmap in Juba. We have to look at this in the context of the the overall relationship, you know, bilaterally and, and with the Troika and and uh, the South Sudan government. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. South Sudanese parties to the revitalized peace agreement have extended the transitional period of the government of national unity for 24 months. Martin Elia Lumro, the Minister of Cabinet Affairs, announced the decision saying the move is aimed at addressing challenges that impede the implementation of the peace agreement. For VOA News, Wake Simon Wood reports from Juba. President Salva Kiir says the decision was reached in an effort to allow peaceful and fair conduct of elections aimed at changing the political situation in the country. Today, I'm informing the people of South Sudan that the political parties who signed the revitalized agreement to resolve the conflict in the Republic of South Sudan unanimously agreed to a 24-month extension of the interim period. First Vice President Riyak Machar says the decision to extend the transitional period was collectively taken by the parties to avoid what he calls the crash of the nation by next year February when the transitional period was due to expire and elections were to be held. He says after thorough evaluation of the implementation of the peace agreement, parties found that around 70% of the deal has not been implemented. Machar called for his partner, the SPLM in government headed by President Kir to provide the required political space and a will for the effective implementation of the peace agreement, saying the environment for implementing the deal has not been fair. We would want to see our national security loved by all. We would like to see our police to be the protector of all. We would like to see our army. If one is in a bus, then a civilian will say, this man dies for me. Sit, take my seat. We would like to see that. We would like to see this organ supporting, serving our country. But with that direction, things will continue. The peace deal's implementation has remained far behind schedule with the key tasks, including security reforms not completed. Edimon Yakani, an activist who spoke Edimon Yakani, an activist who spoke on behalf of the civil society groups at today's announcement, says unless the parties redouble their efforts and respect the timelines in the peace deal, no change will happen in the country. Peace 
is a product of political display. Let me repeat. Peace is a product of political display. We have seen in all the political establishment in this country, within their parties and within the function of the government, we have seen political in display. That has brought us to be here. That's the reality. Senior representatives of Troika countries comprised of the United States, United Kingdom, and Norway, which have supported the process and implementation of the peace agreement since 2018, did not attend the event, citing lack of an inclusive process for extending the transitional period. The 24-month extension begins from February 2023 and ends in February 2025. All representatives of the parties to the revitalized peace agreement signed a document indicating their collective decision to extend the transitional period and called for support from the region and the international community. For VON News, Amwaki Simon Wudu in Juba. Still in Juba, the Troika countries of the U.S., U.K. and Norway boycotted the ceremony for the announcement of a new roadmap for South Sudan's transitional period. The ambassadors of the Troika countries represented in Juba wrote to President Salva Kiir Wednesday expressing their disappointment over what they call a lack of consultations and inclusivity in the process of developing the roadmap. Cameron Hudson is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. He says the international community's withdrawal of support to South Sudan's peace process is worrying, adding that Troika's letter to Mr. Kir shows that the relationship between South Sudan and the West is declining. We have to look at this in the context of the the overall relationship, you know, bilaterally and, and with the Troika and and uh, the South Sudan government, um, it has been on a in on a downward trajectory for many months, frankly. Um, and so I would say that uh, you know, documenting um, in full transparency the uh, the concerns that they have is. Um, you know, a demonstration of the seriousness uh, with which they see uh, the government's latest uh, moves, and they want to be, uh, you know, fully documenting these uh, these concerns uh, for the government. And of course, this uh, decline in their relationship is all about the peace agreement, the slow implementation, uh, the lack of political will to carry out the task in it. And it seems from the tone and content of the letter, the Troika countries are not willing to support an extension to the transition period that is done the way President Kiir is doing it. Uh, what does that mean for the future of the peace agreement and prospects of peace and stability in South Sudan in general? We have to view the peace agreement, um, you know, more as a, uh, as a tactical uh, device used by political elites in the country uh, to, to regroup. Um, but they have not used it as an opportunity to uh, rebuild or start new. Uh, so there has obviously been a pause in fighting that's a good thing. Um, 
and so we should not ignore that. But the fact is, is that the underlying principles uh, about political transformation, inclusivity, um, have not been met, have not even been attempted. Um, and so I think that what you're seeing, not just from the Turkey countries, but you saw from from the U.S. Congress as well recently, uh, you know, statements that we're not going to continue to uh, try to support uh, a peace agreement, which the parties themselves are simply not interested in in pursuing. We're not going to continue to fund uh, efforts uh, to support this government when it's uh, not a government uh, that is interested in um, either abiding by its international and national commitments uh, or uh, you know taking the necessary steps uh, to avoid a future uh, calamitous situation in the country. The former uh, U.S. ambassador to South Sudan, Susan Page, uh, told uh, VOA last month that there's a need to admit that this peace agreement is not working. Is that is that something you feel the international community uh, should come to terms with? Well, I think that they are coming to terms with that. I think that this letter in, in some parts uh, comes to terms with that. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I do think that we need to uh, acknowledge uh, that the peace agreement is not working, not because it's a flawed agreement, but because we have uh, flawed parties to the agreement. Uh, the parties themselves uh, are not interested in um, in the kind of political transformation that is embodied in this uh, in this peace agreement. And you know, I've said for a long time, as long as we have the same political elites holding this country hostage for their own, you know, very um, parochial interests, uh, I can't imagine any uh, any peace agreement uh, really being able to to um, to take hold. This continues to be uh, a winner take all uh, political system, and until that can be fundamentally changed, then I think we always risk uh, a return to violence. That was Cameron Hudson, a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. He was speaking to my colleague Nabil Biagio. The U.S. government has pledged more than 200 million U.S. dollars to support South Sudanese who are food insecure. They charge the affair. The U.S. embassy in Juba says South Sudan is facing its worst food crisis since 2021. The World Food Program Regional Director for East Africa says 7.1 million South Sudanese are going hungry due to man-made famine. For VOA News, Manyang David Mayer reports from Juba. They charge the affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Juba. William Flames announced the U.S. funding today during a ceremony in Juba. It is a distinct honor for me and my embassy colleagues and me to be here today to preside over this announcement of a combined contribution of 223 million U.S. dollars from the United States through the U.S. Agency for International Development and the World Food Program to the people of South Sudan. Flynn says the contribution will save lives of millions of South Sudanese who are going hungry at what he calls a critical time. He says several factors have contributed to the food crisis. From my travels across this beautiful country, I've heard from ordinary people about how they are struggling 
more than ever to make a living and to feed their families. This shouldn't be the case. South Sudan is a rich country. And I see that suffering right here in Juba. That's why this contribution is so timely. It will save lives at a time when most of the, the many of the vulnerable people in South Sudan are struggling just to get by day to day. Adeinka Badejo, the World Food Program country director in South Sudan, says the UN Food Agency was forced in April 2022 to cut food assistance to almost 2 million South Sudanese due to funding gaps. She says the U.S. donations will help World Food Program resume food distributions across parts of South Sudan. We are now in a position to resume assistance to some of these people, particularly nutritious food support to women and children. The World Food Program is very grateful to the U.S. government for your consistent and reliable support to WFP, particularly at a time when hunger is rising dramatically across the country. World Food Program Regional Director for East Africa, Michael Dunford, says 89 million people in the East African region, including more than 7 million people in South Sudan, are facing acute food insecurity. He says several factors, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the impact of climate change, COVID-19, and conflict are factors creating global food insecurity. When you put all of these factors together, the needs are continuing to increase. The gap between the needs and the levels of funding, unfortunately, is widening. And the World Food Program is enormously appreciative of the support we receive. Across the region, the U.S. government contributes almost $2 billion annually to the levels of funding of the World Food Program. In South Sudan, Danford says 70% of World Food Program donations come from the United States government. He is urging the government of South Sudan to lead and own the needs of the South Sudanese people. We as a humanitarian community are here to support the government. We're able to with support from the likes of the U.S. government, and we are willing to do that. But it's very important that the government takes ownership for the needs of the population, and that is when we are able to work most effectively. South Sudan Vice President and Chair of the Gender and Youth Cluster, Rebecca Nyanding Demabur, says the U.S. funding has come at a time when the humanitarian situation in the country is deteriorating. We must also work together on long-term solutions to reduce dependency on humanitarian assistance while addressing the immediate need or needs of the most vulnerable we should also reflect on what we must do together to strengthen the resilience of the people of South Sudan, boosting agricultural production and strengthening national food system. Nyadeng says some states in South Sudan have done very well in food production this year and says she believes her country will recover from the acute food crisis. For VOA News, I'm a young David Mayor in Juba. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, 
Doctors Without Borders or MSFC, some parts of Sudan is experiencing malnutrition. Find out why after the break. what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one, two, zero, two, six, three, zero, eight, zero, one, one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. The French charity Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is expressing concern over what it says is an alarming increase in malnutrition cases among children in various Sudanese states, including the Darfur region. MSF Health Advisor for Sudan and South Sudan says an increase in insecurity, intercommunal conflicts, and lack of access to food and health have contributed to Sudan's malnutrition cases. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. MSF says, based on reports it has received and direct observation on the ground, it remains deeply concerned about the current deteriorating nutrition situation across Sudan. Michel Sangma, MSF's health advisor for Sudan and South Sudan, says the agency's field team conducted a community nutrition survey in central Darfur in March this year and found an alarming prevalence of malnutrition among children that is rated above the emergency threshold. Michel says many families in Darfur and other parts of Sudan are unable to put food on the table for their families due to current economic hardships. Since March this year, our team has seen a concerning increase in malnutrition rate in our project operational areas, with alerts now received from other states across the countries as well. The pressure of the ongoing economic crisis and inflation, the macroeconomic situation in Sudan is getting worse. Food prices have nearly tripled compared to last year and are projected to be more than 500% above the five years average by next year. Early last month, the World Food Program in Sudan said about one-third of the population, or more than 15 million people, are most likely to face food insecurity until September. The MSF official says his team is currently carrying out a nutrition intervention activities in Jebel Mara of Central Darfur, where about 50,000 people have been displaced and are scattered around the mountains. He says the latest malnutrition report from field teams indicates an increase in the number of children being admitted in MSF's treatment centers. On an average, we used to see around 20 children in our stabilization center. And these are the patients that are severely malnourished with medical complications. But now since May, we are seeing an average of 60 admissions per month. Michel describes the increase as alarming and says it will contribute negatively to the existing gap in needs. He says hunger and the ongoing rainy season will likely increase the spread of infectious diseases, including malaria and diarrhea, which can lead to more cases of malnutrition. This increased already dire health gaps and needs. People do not have access to their farmland and livelihoods and livestock, which decreases food availability in the markets. It thereby increases the food insecurity. Khalid Musa, head of UNICEF's field office in Blue Nile, White Nile and Sinai, States describes the situation of Sudanese children as critical since malnutrition cases continue to rise in many parts of the country. Three million suffer from malnourishment, of which 650,000 
children suffer from severe acute malnutrition, which is the most severe type. There are also 3 million children out of school and close to 40% of the population don't have access to basic uh, level of drinking water. Michel says there is an urgent need to stabilize security so communities are able to access their farms, produce their own food and have easy access to health care services. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. Opposition politician Raila Odinga is making another bid for Kenya's presidency on Tuesday, August 9. But this time, he has the support of former rival and outgoing president Uhuru Kenyatta, who has served the maximum two terms. VOA's Paul Ndiho reports. Kenyans head to the polls to elect their next president on August 9th. Raila Odinga, the 77-year-old, long assumed to be the leader of opposition in Kenya, is contesting the elections for the fifth time. He has promised to focus on the cost of living if he becomes Kenya's next president. The prices of grain, of fertilizer has gone on, the price of fuel has also gone up. And this is a telling effect on the cost of living of our people. We also are having some also other crises, um, the issues of debt that we're also having to face. Uh, but um, we are confident that um, we can survive just like other countries are also surviving. Odinga is touting his long experience in national leadership, including a stint as prime minister. But this time he has the support of President Uhuru Kenyatta. Odinga and Kenyatta set their differences aside four years ago after a bitter dispute following the 2017 vote. The allegiance has increased the pressure on Kenyatta's deputy, William Ruto. Tom Boyer, a governance consultant, says Odinga and his running mate, Martha Karua, are gaining momentum, especially after they have come out strongly on ending corruption. I think the combination of those two uh, personalities uh, leading, potentially leading a government that has articulated that it would seek to deal conclusively uh, with corruption is something that many Kenyans find comforting uh, and probably even leading a number of Kenyans to that side of the political divide. Odinga's last three runs for office in 2007, 2013 and 2017, he led his supporters in protest at the outcomes or challenged them in court, saying his victories were stolen. Violent clashes have followed the 2007 and 2017 forts. Odinga and Ruto are battling it out on the campaign trail, especially in central Kenya, where Kenyatta's ethnic Kikuyu voters are up for grabs. Ruto was Odinga's ally in 2007 when the police cracked down on protesters and clashes eventually turned into ethnic attacks that killed more than 1,000 people in post-election violence. Ruto also teamed up with Kenyatta in 2013. At least 22 million Kenyans are eligible to vote on August 9th. Still on Kenya with elections just Days away, some Kenyans living in South Sudan's capital, Juba, say this year's heightened pre-election tensions remind them of the post-election violence in 2007 and 2008. 
Kenyans go to the polls on Tuesday in a historic presidential election with Raila Odinga, Kenya's former prime minister, who has run as a presidential candidate four times and withdrew once, will face Deputy President William Ruto. For VOA News, Sheila Pony has more from Juba. Some Kenyans working in Juba say they are hoping that whoever wins the election, the new president will focus on stabilizing the country's economy and work towards making the East African community a reality. Kevin Ogutu is one of them. We are looking forward to a leadership that will strengthen East African community and um, help to move towards uh, becoming um, that unit that everyone is aspiring for. Um, in terms of development, we believe that uh, the Lapset project is something that uh, whoever is coming in should um, see to it that it is actualized because of uh, the immense benefits that will help us. Other Kenyans working in Juba, like Jeffa Thogila, worry about the ethnic divide during political campaigning in the run-up to the election. Ogila says his country has gone through many crises. We are coming from COVID-19 impact and we are also trying to fight corruption as a country. We really need someone who can be able to do a good job even within a short time. Another Kenyan resident of Juba town, Elvins Joshua, says he looks forward to seeing a new president with a vision for his country guy who is going to be the next president of Kenya. He has a lot of, a lot of work to do uh, because the outgoing president Uru Kenyatta has done a lot for the country, especially in terms of infrastructure. And um, whoever wins, uh, we expect him to you know, continue with the, uh, with the growth. The economy currently isn't doing well, so I expect somebody who will come and uh, maybe work up on that economy to make it a bit vibrant the way Kibaki did. Ogutu says he remembers all too well the post-election violence over a decade ago in which over 1,000 people were killed and noticed the antagonism and hostility on display at this year's campaign events. He says he hopes Kenya remain calm after the results are announced. We are looking forward to a peaceful Kenya before, during and after election. We have had a very difficult past. That is the 2007-2008 post-election skirmishes, which nearly degenerated into a civil war. And um, we are hoping that uh, Kenya will not uh, go that direction. So peace is a very expensive thing, more expensive than losing an election. Beth Simba, a graphic designer living in Juba, left Kenya two years ago. Simba says she will not be going to vote, but hopes that whoever wins the election will unify Kenyans. It's divisive in that someone would like and support a politician solely because of their ethnicity. And that should not be the case. So as we head into the elections, we're hoping to get someone whose core business is to help Kenyans, regardless of where someone is coming from, to raise a better nation. So to all my Kenyans out there, let's vote with our minds and not with our hearts. Ogila says the current tension in Kenya should not worry Kenyans. He says he believes this year's election will be peaceful. When it comes to election in Kenya, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension. Uh, so many people fear and get people going to buy a lot of things in the supermarket because they don't know what will happen tomorrow. For me, I'm confident that we are going to have a peaceful election because if you look at Kenyan election, they're mostly uh, people vote uh, along tribal lines. 
but uh, traditionally the major ethnic uh, communities that always clash this time they, are, uh, they seem to be on one side of Raila. Kenyans living in South Sudan say they want the August 9th elections to be held in a peaceful environment and hope that the winner work towards creating a vibrant economy. For VOA News, I am Sheila Pony in Juba. And that's all we prepared for you this Thursday. We now leave you with some actually traditional song from Eastern Equatorial State. Actually, traditional song from Eastern Equatorial State. I'm your host, John Tanzan Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us this evening. Remember to join us tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Yeah.